Glad you're here this morning. Thanks for coming through the rain, the dark, all those vicissitudes of life. How courageous to be here at 6.30 in the morning. And uh, some of you have said, it's very courageous of me to try to keep you awake at that hour. <laughs> I'm not sure I do for most of you. Uh, you know, uh, let me ask, how many of you are either pastors or full-time Christian workers? Would you just raise your hand? Yeah, okay, thanks. Uh, while they're having that seminar on uh, From Success to Significance, we're going to hold a little halftime seminar right here in this room. It's going to be on From Significance to Success. Uh, so you can get your hands on some of that money that the guys around the table have. You know, we're going to teach you Christian workers how to, you've been living significant lives. You need a little success, don't you? No, no, no. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm sure you're going to show up anyway, hoping desperately that there, there's a seminar on that. But no, no, no seminars on that. That's really important. And uh, it's, it's interesting to me that in a culture where we have uh, so many material blessings, so many privileges, so many things, that the human heart longs for significance. I mean, we're just, you're not going to get out of this life being satisfied with more things, another toy to play with, another vacation home, another car. You're just not. God didn't make you that way. It's never going to satisfy you. And so we're constantly going back to the basics, and that's what that seminar is all about, is how do you get your life back in gear? Maybe instead of running your business, your business has been running you. And that's often what happens. We tend to collect more things. Those things end up collecting us and ordering us and telling us what to do. So really, it's just kind of a mid, mid-course correction. How do I get my life back on track so that I'm really running my life and running it for the, for the good? Well, this morning, we want to talk about a very important issue. And I find that it plagues people of all religious backgrounds. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not, or what denomination you are or, or not. Uh, you, from time to time, will have the question about why in the world is life uh, so difficult? And especially, why is it that I'm running into things at work or in my marriage or with my kids that just don't seem to be fair? Life ain't fair. Why is this? And then when you become a Christian, for those of you here who have, and you learn in the Bible that God is good. And as uh, we say, He is good all the time. God is good. You say, if He's good, why is my life, why does this stink? (laughs) How can there be a good God in such an evil world? And we usually ask that question when something tough happens in our own lives. And, uh, you know, if you lose somebody that you love, especially if it's a child, let's say, for example, which is about the hardest thing for us to deal with, you just ask yourself, why, why, why? And we have some questions for God, and some of us are looking forward to getting to heaven because we have a few things we want to ask Him about. Uh, Now, I want to suggest that when you get there, you probably won't have the same questions. (laughs) But that's the way we feel right now. I mean, we, we want it. Take him to task. Put God in the dock. Ask him a few questions. Cross-examine him. There seem to be some contradictions in life. And in your own lives, you feel it. Uh, you, you may say, like Job, you know, I, I thought I was living a pretty decent life. You know, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't, you know, paid my taxes. Shoot. You know, and I end up with this, uh, this kind of a life and these problems. That is classic uh, human experience. And uh, good news is, the Bible addresses classic human experience, uh, and it addresses this. And the book we're going to study today, next uh, Thursday, and the one after that, uh, gets into this uh, in a very deep way. Uh, the name of the book is Habakkuk. And you might turn to Habakkuk. Uh, you'll find it if you've got your study Bible on page 1489. And uh, we're moving also uh, into another era 
of world history. You know, we, we looked at Nahum last week, which was the, the last book that we'll examine that really was during the period of the Assyrian power. Now we're going to move into Babylonian power. And <clears throat> there's a little bit different take on all this. The Assyrians have been defeated, actually, by Babylon. Babylon defeated Nineveh. Actually, they also defeated the Egyptians at Carchemish. So now they are the uncontested world power. And uh, they're ruthless. Uh, maybe the Assyrians were a tad worse in their reputation. The Assyrians, as we saw, were absolutely grisly uh, in their violence. They just delighted themselves in their violence. The Babylonians were tough customers. I mean, you know, when they took some of the some of the Judean kings captive, before they took them, they'd gouge their eyes out. And before they gouged their eyes out, the last thing they, they would get to see is the slaughter of their own children. Then they gouged their eyes out. So the last thing they ever saw was the slaughter of their own children. Now, that was the Babylonians. They're pretty tough customers. The Assyrians actually were worse, believe it or not. But Babylonians were tough. And this is during the period when they are in ascendancy. They're in great, they're the world power. And we're going to find that that Habakkuk has these kinds of questions that we have in our lives. And we're going to see that he gets some answers. Not all the answers that we need, but some of them in this part of the Bible. Let's take a look then at Habakkuk chapter 1. We're just going to read verses 1 through 11. And we'll start with verses 1 through 4. As a matter of fact, we'll start with verse 1. Let's look at it. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. All right? First thing we want to notice is that when you have a serious question, your answer is going to be determined by the worldview that you choose. Let me say it again. When you have a serious question, your answer is going to be determined by the worldview that you choose. If you have a very serious automobile accident, uh, most people would say, as bad luck. Just bad luck. If you had that same automobile accident on the streets of Calcutta, people would say, bad karma. <laughs> you know, it just depends upon your worldview. If you're a Christian, you'd say the providence of God. Uh, so it depends on your worldview as to the kind of answer you're going to get. And notice this first verse is telling us something very important about where you need to get your answers. When you're asking questions, when you are complaining, when you are struggling, you, you want to choose your answers very carefully, and they really need to come from God because God communicates in oracles. Oracles. That's what this is, is an oracle. It's, a vo it's the voice of God. Uh, J.I. Packer said in describing the Bible, uh, he put it in two words, God preaching. <laughs> Isn't that great? The Bible is God preaching. It's his oracle, his voice, and he communicates to us through those oracles. So when you're looking at the Bible, you're looking at God's word. And if you want to know about suffering, about injustices in life, about why your life seems to be so abysmal, look to God. He's the one with the answers. And you will come out with his answers instead of what is known as common sense. So you can either go for common sense. Common sense just means what everybody thinks. Uh, or you can go for the oracles of God. God communicates through prophets. He communicates through prophets and apostles. That's the way he chose to do it. He could have written it in the sky if he wanted to. Or he could have dropped a golden tablet down from heaven. Or, you know, somebody could have dug one up from, from underneath uh, the surface of the earth. Or, but no, he spoke through apostles and prophets. 
That's how he communicates his will. So the first thing we want to start with is our worldview. Where does our authority come from? Is it from your mama, your Aunt Sue, your grandfather, or is it going to be from the Scriptures? And if it's from the Scriptures, then we need to be students of the Scriptures in order to understand the Word of God. And obviously we have human teachers, and his oracles are mediated to us through these teachers, but we are to be teachers ourselves. Because He gives us His Spirit, He gives us His Word, His Spirit helps us understand the Word, and the Word is our instruction for life. So the Bible is life to us. It is God's mind revealed to us. That's the reason we study it. Because we enter into a closer relationship with Him because we understand Him better and we know how to live life in a way that pleases Him. Now let's look at the next three verses, verses 2 through 4. And we're going to see in these verses that when we've got complaints, therefore... Those complaints need to go to God. Let's look and see what he says. He says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, Violence, but you do not save? Why do you, look, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. And justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. This is serious business. He is saying, how long, O Lord, which is a common theme in the Scriptures. You remember in Revelation, the the saints in heaven cry out, how long, O Lord? How long do you bring final justice to bear on the earth? We're waiting for you to to display your glory and bring an end to all things and usher in the kingdom of peace and righteousness. How long, O Lord? We're very impatient, aren't we? Because we live in days and years and God lives in eternity. And so to us, you know, to Him a thousand years are but a day. To us a thousand years is a long time. We call it a millennium. And it seems like God has forgotten us. So we cry out often, How long, O Lord? What's really bugging Habakkuk? What's bugging him is that God doesn't seem to be listening to him. You see that in verse 2, chapter 1. He says, you do not listen, you do not save. Well, that's really something to say to God, isn't it? (laughs) God, you don't have any ears, and you're not a saving God. Wow. That's that's pathetic. That's, That's really blasphemous, isn't it? Well, you know what? When you have something bad happen in your life, and it seems contrary to what God promised you, you'll say all kinds of things. You remember how when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and the squall comes, which is very it's life-threatening. You, you know, if, if you could go down deep enough in the Sea of Galilee, you'd find lots of bones down there, people who had drowned in storms. They, they come very rapidly upon the Sea of Galilee uh, through the mountains in the north. And uh, they were in one of those storms right in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, you remember what the disciples said to Jesus, who was asleep in the back of the boat on a cushion? <laughs> the only place in the Scriptures where we're told that Jesus was sleeping. And it's during a storm where the disciples are absolutely desperate and terrified. And they go to Him, and what do they say? Don't you care? Saying that to Jesus Christ, don't you care? When He is teaching them and loving them, healing them, and providing for them, and one day he's going to end up naked on a cross. Don't you care? What a question. But when life's vicissitudes come at you, that's the way you feel. Those are the kind of questions you ask. And aren't you glad that somebody asked it for you? Habakkuk. Lord, the problem with you is you don't listen. (laughs) 
It's ridiculous. Well, the problem with you is, when I cry out for salvation and you don't save. Whew, whew. If you see a little burn mark on your Bible right there, that's, that's from heaven. <laughs> you know, I, but look, the great thing is there is no burn mark and that God takes ridiculous, stupid, idiotic questions like that from His people. Why? Because you're His kid. He loves you. If you have a little four-year-old, they'll ask you the dumbest questions. You don't love me. You hate me. No, that's 13-year-old. Let's see. What do they say it for? Uh, <laughs> it's all these stupid things. And uh, it makes no sense at all. And you just, sometimes you just want to say, you're right, I hate you. you know? Stupid. But you don't hate them. You love them. And as far as you're concerned, that, that's a nothing. That's not even a flea bite. Because your relationship with them is, is so tight, so integral, so passionate in your heart. Just all, they've done all kinds. Have you ever just, no, don't do it. But can you imagine what would happen if you took all the list of things your kids would say to you that were just really ugly? Or even worse, if you took the things they said behind your back <laughs> to other people, I wish I had different parents, you know. And take all those things, and it doesn't matter. To you, it's almost humorous. Because they're so immature and so silly and so weak and so small and so needy, and you're the one who's taking care of them. It's almost humorous. Well, that's probably the way it is with God. His love for you is so great. He hears you asking these stupid, idiotic questions coming out of your own pain. Uh, and He just takes it all. No burn marks. Uh, he, he takes the questions. And here is the first complaint. God is not listening to us. Here's the second complaint, and here's the heart of it. God is tolerating the absolutely intolerable. Here is something going on, as far as Habakkuk is concerned, something that's going on in the church. It's going on in Judah. And God is the God of justice, and He ain't doing anything about it. It's rampant. It's unchecked. It's the antithesis of God, and nothing's happening. Where are you, God? You're not listening. You're not saving. You are tolerating this crud among your own people. It doesn't seem like you, God. You've got me befuddled. And he starts by saying, you're teaching us bad habits. Why do you make me look at this injustice? You know, isn't it interesting? You know, it's bad enough for God to look at it, but God, even greater problem is you're making me look at it. <laughs> Habakkuk puts himself in the middle of the universe. Why are you making me, why are you making me look at this justice? Don't you know, God, that I'm a Christian? <laughs> Don't you know? I'm not supposed to be looking at this filth. Don't you know I'm not supposed to have to tolerate this stuff? So he's complaining about what he's having to look at. But then notice he goes on from there uh, to the real crux of the problem. And that is that God is not exercising his role as judge. Why are you tolerating wrong? And that really does present the problem, doesn't it? Why is God allowing all this stuff to go on? And what he's really saying in verses 3 and 4 is that you're letting the church get away with murder. And I mean literally, in Habakkuk's case. But Habakkuk was living among God's people uh, in Judah, the southern kingdom, and he was finding all this wickedness going on in the church. It was unchecked. It was uh, going on without correction. And it just basically made him say, where are you, God? Now, those of you who remember something about the series of Judahite kings, do you remember that things got really bad with Manasseh? I mean, really bad. He reigned for 55 years. We talked about him a little bit uh, last time when we were looking at Nahum. 
but then following him, you had his son Ammon, who was assassinated. He only reigned for a couple of years. And here's this eight-year-old who was Ammon's son. And now think about this eight-year-old. Eight years of age, and his daddy gets assassinated. And his grandfather had the reputation of being the most wicked king in all of Israel. Now, what chances are there, do you think, that this eight-year-old would turn out to be any good at all? Very slim. Most psychologists, in fact, I read a psychologist one time who said that when an eight-year-old has been abandoned and abused, you know, there's no hope for him, something like that. I forgot exactly how he said it. Josiah was eight years old. He turned out to be one of the greatest kings in Israel. His daddy was assassinated when he was eight. He took the kingship. By the time he was 16, he was clearing that place out of all of his, all of his false gods. He was establishing true worship. By the time he was 20, he established the Passover and got things going again in Israel, brought the feast of the Passover again, found the book of the law and read that book and began to order the life of Judah according to the book of the law. And Josiah uh, began to reign at eight years of age, and then he was killed actually in that battle that I mentioned in Carchemish when the Babylonians beat the Egyptians. And he went out to fight Pharaoh, uh, Necho, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and was, was killed at 39 years of age. So that means he reigned 31 years. And he was a righteous king. Wonderful story uh, in your Bible. That's around Second Chronicles 34, 35, right in there. Now, Josiah had a son who did not do so well. And he was uh, taken captive to Egypt. And Egypt put in another son of Josiah as king. His name was Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim reigned from 608 to 598. And Jehoiakim was a vassal of Egypt. And you can see in a period of Babylonian ascendancy, that ain't so good. And that's what happened to Jehoiakim in 598. The Babylonians came and took him captive and gouged his eyes out and all the rest I told you about. And then Jehoiakim became king as a Babylonian vassal. So what period we're in now, we're in the period following good little King Josiah. We're in the period of Jehoiakim, who's a vassal of Egypt. And he's trying to pay off the Egyptians to hold off the Babylonians, and it ain't going to work. And furthermore, we're told in the Scriptures that Jehoiakim was an evil king. So all the good things his father did, Jehoiakim is now just turning around completely. So just as amazing as it is to see little eight-year-old Josiah come out of that dysfunctional family and lead the, the uh, Judah into righteousness, here again, it, takes, it, you know, it, it often happens. You have this righteous king and his son is abysmal. And that's, that's what's happening now. So Judah is in rampant wickedness under Jehoiakim. The church is getting away with murder. You can see it in the verses. Unchecked wickedness. You see it there when it says, destruction and violence are before me. It's everywhere. What does that lead to? It leads to strife and conflict in verse 3D there. So when destruction and violence takes place and it's unchecked, that leads to strife and conflict. When you have rampant evil that's unchecked in the church, you're going to have divisions. You're going to have conflict. It's going to happen. And what will that lead to? Judicial paralysis. He says in the text that the law is paralyzed. The law can do us no good. And just as John Adams said, or no, James Madison said, our Constitution, our country 
was built for a religious people. So you want to paralyze the Constitution? You want to paralyze our laws? Then let's have rampant evil. Let's forget about prayer and revival and righteousness and worship and following Christ and evangelism and missions. Just forget all that. And the Constitution is paralyzed. can do us no good at all. There is so much strife and conflict, you can't possibly solve it with the Constitution. You can't have enough lawyers. You can't have enough courtrooms. You can spend 100% of your income on judicial process, and you'll never get it right. It's just like if you look at civil rights. You know, we have to have certain laws, but when you have rampant disobedience, you still have rampant discrimination, the law is paralyzed. How do you adjudicate all those cases? You don't. You have to have people's hearts changed. It's the same way with sexual immorality. You can have all the laws you need to forbid rampant pornography that scandalizes a community and destroys our children. You can have all the laws you want, but if you don't have a people who have a heart for God, it will do you no good at all. It's par- it paralyzes the law. And that's exactly what happens when people become litigious and think that they're going to solve this world's problems through Congress or passing certain laws. We need good laws. The laws are a reflection of the heart. We've got to have good hearts. And that's the reason with your own life, if you want to ask what kind of influence you're going to have in this world, it's not just politics. It's not just more laws. It's not even civic service. It's changing the hearts of people, beginning with the ones that are in your home. And then the ones that are in your church, the ones that are in your neighborhood, the ones that are in your acquaintance, talking about real issues with real people. Your lunch engagement today, I don't know who it's going to be with, but with whomever you have lunch, they ought to leave that lunch table, a different person, because they've had lunch with you. And there ought to be something of substance coming out of your life. They ought to pick up that there's a heart there. There's a passion there. There's a care there for something that goes beyond just making a living or getting by or not getting arrested. For heaven's sakes, most people live life just hoping they won't get arrested. Won't get caught. When that's the way you live life, the law is paralyzed. Our society is worthless. Our constitution is worthless. Our legacy is worthless. So that's the reason that we do what we do today. That's the reason we're studying the Bible. Because it's far more important than studying the Constitution. It really is. Because the Constitution and our laws rest upon a people whose hearts are captivated by the Word of God and by His love for us. So judicial paralysis, which then leads to the triumph of the wicked. You want to know who wins when the Constitution is paralyzed? Not the righteous. The wicked win. And when you find that our court system is so backed up and can't try its cases, guess who wins? The criminal. The white-collar criminal, blue-collar criminal, all kinds of criminal. Male criminal, female criminal, business criminal, drug addicts, everybody. They win. And what happens when that happens? That leads to an absolute perversion of justice. That is... We don't even know what justice is anymore. And what that leads to is then powerful, charismatic figures who then become tyrants. That's the only way you can get order in your society is through the perversion of justice. And you will trade in freedom in order to get order. So that is what had happened in Judah. It's what has happened in every society that has ultimately collapsed, the judicial process has been paralyzed 
Because of unchecked evil, where are you going to check that evil? You can't check it in the courtrooms. You have to check it in families. You have to check it in relationships. Guys who know guys well enough to check each other. You have to check it in the church. And that was, uh, that was Habakkuk's primary complaint, is that the church was a cesspool. And I'll tell you what, I, I can look at the church today and, and I think we can make some similar complaints, couldn't we? What do you see in the church today? I see rampant sexual promiscuity, use of pornography, people who are getting abortions when they want them because they don't think anybody else should have an abortion, but if they get in trouble or their daughter does, they'll sure get one in the church. I see rampant, unchecked divorce in the church. Some of you have had divorces. Some of them were warranted by the Bible. You know, if you've been irreconcilably deserted or a spouse has committed sexual intercourse, adultery, then a divorce can be warranted. And that doesn't mean you have to get a divorce. It doesn't even mean necessarily you should get a divorce, but it means you morally can get a divorce. And there's nothing inferior about it. You're not a second-class citizen. So there are warrants for divorce, but some of us here probably have had divorces that were not biblically warranted. And I would bet if we went around these tables and asked you know, each of you who have had divorces that you think were not biblically warranted, and we asked you this question, who in the church said anything much to you about it? There would be very few of you who in your churches actually had anybody saying anything to you about it. I had a guy, a friend of mine, uh, about, oh, 15 years ago, who said, Sandy, I've got a friend who's going to one of the churches downtown, not here in Memphis, it was in Chattanooga, going to one of the churches downtown. He's involved in a divorce. It's just breaking my heart. Would you go talk to him? And I did. We knew each other a little bit, and we talked, and I asked him about his situation and tried to encourage him. And then at one point I said to him, "Um, has anybody in your church ever said anything to you about what you're getting ready to do? Because it was a public matter that he was prosecuting divorce. He said, no, no one's ever. I said, is your pastor saying? No. That's typical. That is unchecked wickedness in the church. There was no adultery. There was no abandonment. It was just an unwarranted divorce. Now, God forgives all kinds of sins. And he for sure forgives that one. And I'm so glad because I've done things worse than that. And uh, I can guarantee you I wouldn't be a Christian if I didn't believe in forgiveness. I'd be afraid the whole dying roof would fall in on me. Uh, So he forgives everything. I'm talking about being forgiven now. How do we live our lives? Or having made a mistake, you know, even committed a sin in my past, what am I going to do in the future? And what Habakkuk is seeing is, yes, God's a God of grace, but he's also a God of justice. And his word is there. His truth is there. What are we doing in our churches? I'll tell you what. I don't find churches doing much of anything. You know why? They're afraid of you. That you'll get mad at them. That you may stop giving. That you may go to another church. That you may tell everybody what a lousy church that is. Or who knows what. I don't know what gets people afraid. But the churches are allowing stuff like that to go on where if you're involved in something like that, for heaven's sakes, you need somebody who's a friend to come alongside and at least tell you what the Bible says. At least give you a fair warning. At least to plead with you for God's sake and your sake and your children's sake not to do that. You need a friend who will do that. I need friends in my life who warn me of all kinds of things. I put them everywhere. I 
I've got friends everywhere to check me. But the church goes on largely unchecked because we're afraid of laymen and what they might say and what they might do. How pathetic. I see that going on in the church today everywhere. I see wholesale neglect of the poor in the church. We've got enormous health issues right here in Memphis. Enormous education issues. Enormous employment issues. And largely, if a church is prosperous, they don't think too much about it. Now, the poor churches, they think about it all the time. They're trying to help each other survive. But I don't, I don't find that wealthy churches, by nature, are overly taken up with the concern for the poor. I find in churches a lot of unreconciled relationships. People who really, literally hate each other. And they'll try to arrange to be in different services or sit on opposite sides of the sanctuary. Church is full of that. And some leaders in the church know about it, don't say anything about it. Why? We're afraid of you. Afraid that you'll think that we're sticking our nose in your business. We have in our churches people who are suing each other, not corporation to corporation, but person to person. And they both claim to be brothers. And nobody's challenging them on that from 1 Corinthians 6. And that's just an example of the kind of gossip and slander and unreconciled relationships. We have, we have decided that it's okay not to be reconciled as far as we have anything to do with it in all of our relationships. We've decided that's okay. And I find churches going on with that, it's just absolutely unchecked. I find in churches a rampant consumerism. And it's okay for you to think about church just for you and your little children, and that's about it. That's about as far as, as the mission goes. I was talking to a friend who's a pastor the other day who's got one of those classic problems in his church where the, the church has a school. The church has you know a few hundred members in it, but the school has a few hundred. And the, church, the school is actually a little bit stronger and, and more successful, if you will, than the church is. And so they've got in all kinds of conflicts and power struggles. And it's one of those textbook sort of stories. And uh, he was telling me how they were going through the process of trying to Reconcile, and he said he got a letter from a woman the other day, and she wrote and said, I want you to know, Pastor, there's only one thing I care about. It's my third grade daughter. And that's what most people, I mean, at least she was honest. There's one thing I care about, and that's the only thing I really care about in that dying church of yours, and that's that I want my three year old, my third grade daughter to have a good education. That's it. Is that the mission of Christ? To be concerned about your kid only? And I find it rampant in the church. The church is there for my convenience and for a little bit of religion, religious uplift for my home so that I feel a little bit encouraged. Now, if the music's not quite zippy or zappy enough and doesn't send me out with a little positive oomph to go into the week, I'm disappointed. I wanted that. Instead of going to church and thinking, the Lord God is God and He deserves to be worshipped and He's going to get it from me today no matter what anybody else does. And this, that church is full of people who need to be encouraged. And some of them need to be fed. And some of them need a better education. And some of them need, well, some of those teenagers need an adult who will pat them on the back and say, you know, son, you're doing great. People don't go to church that way. I find consumerism rampant in the church. I find bad theology rampant in the church. Rampant. People who think that Jesus Christ is not the only way to go to heaven. Where did you get that idea? From common sense. You didn't get it from the Bible. And it's the antithesis of what God says about Himself. Imagine this. You're God. You send your one and only Son. He's absolutely perfect. He dies a death to save your entire race of people that you love. All 
of God's people. He dies for them. And then you have your church, the people that were purchased with the blood of your one and only son, and they're telling you, well, there must be some other way. Oh, you're God. You're saying, shoot, I should have thought of that. There is some other way. Why didn't I think, why did I send my son to die for those people? I could have picked some other way. I didn't have to send my own son. Oh, I wish you told me that. I wish you were God instead of me. The church purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ says there's some other way to be forgiven for your sins and go to heaven. Can you imagine this? And I find it rampant. And the church is suggesting the Bible is not the Word of God. And God has attended this Word with signs and wonders. He's given His Word through prophets and apostles over thousands of years. And now we're ditching it off to the side and say, well, that's a good book. So is De Capital and some other books. You know, They're all good books and helpful and interesting. The Bible's a good book. I find that rampant through the church. People explaining away the things that are in the Bible. And people who are, because something's popular in the culture, they'll find new creative virtuoso interpretations of the Scriptures to accommodate these cultural things that are going on so that we don't have to be weird and contrary to what's going on in the culture. I find that rampant in the church. So if, if I've touched the nerve with anybody, maybe we all feel kind of like a back of God, where are you? Are you going to tolerate this stuff? That's what Habakkuk was asking. And when certain things like Katrina and Rita and tsunamis hit, we also ask, where are you, God? Is this the way that you're performing? Well, God gives an answer. We're going to see that God's answers are not always easy to accept. And let's look at his answer. Beginning with verse 5. What's his answer to evil in the church? Evil in our lives. Verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. And Habakkuk says, huh? (laughs) Gentlemen, this is not going to be easy for us. That's what we say. God's answers are not always easy. His answer is going to be surprising. You're going to be utterly amazed at my answer to your question. You're concerned about the church. You're concerned about Christian behavior. You're concerned that justice is being perverted in our society because it's being perverted in the church and all these people are doing all these things. You're going to be utterly amazed And I'm going to do it. I'm going to do something. You notice in verse 5, he doesn't say, this is going to happen to you by chance. Or I'm going to allow. No, he doesn't doesn't even say that. He says, I am going to do something in your days. I'm going to do it. So he says, don't worry. I've noticed all the things you've talked about. I see all the problems you're mentioning. I see people who are taking advantage of you. I see all the social injustice. I see the racism. I see the lack of of the neglect of the poor. I see the sexual immorality. I see all of it. And I'm going to do something. So, okay. 
Okay, God, uh, that's fine. I just, just want to be sure uh, that, that you noticed. <laughs> uh, here's what he's going to do. He's going to do something soon. He says it's going to be in your days. It's going to be soon. And that has implications for us. It's coming. He's got it in his hands. He's perfectly capable of doing it. And guess what? He's going to do it. And then we see in verses 6 through 11, the depth of this is going to be very severe when he does it. If you think you've been disturbed by injustice, if you think that, you know, because of your righteousness, you're seeing certain things that just don't seem to be right, well, your righteousness is as filthy rags compared to his righteousness. If you think you see something, what do you think he sees? He sees a whole lot more than you do. He says, I'm raising up the Babylonians. Wow. Raising up what? Now, it'd be okay. Now, if, I mean, we're the church. It'd be okay if you said you're going to raise up some angels. Come attack us. Because they're righteous. They're better than we are. But you're raising up who? You're raising up the Iraqis? You're raising up the terrorists? God. Would you please explain that? That's going to come tomorrow, uh, next week. Habakkuk can't quite get this, but look what the Lord is saying. He's raising up the Babylonians. And here's what they are. In verse 6a, you see that they are ruthless and impetuous. In 6b, you find that they're not only ruthless, they're powerful. They sweep across the whole earth and seize dwelling places they don't own. They're thieves and they're ruthless takers, seizers of property. They are absolutely terrifying. Everybody knows how terrifying the Babylonians are. The Egyptians are finding out how terrifying the Babylonians are. The Assyrians found out how terrifying the Babylonians are. Everybody knows they're absolutely ruthless. They play by no rules but their own. They're absolutely lawless. You see in 7b, he says, uh, they are a law to themselves. You want to reason with them? Talk about some humanitarian common basis for a legal structure for society? You can forget that. They don't care anything about laws. They make them up as they go. That's the way they do it. It has to do with who's in power. Nietzsche is absolutely right. Right is might. That's what the Babylonians are, and they're the ones I'm going to use to help you guys out. Uh, and they're proud. They won't come and say, oh, look, I, you need a little correction. Look, I'm just as bad a sinner as you are. They won't correct you gently with tears, as Paul says in Galatians 6.1. You can forget that. They're going to say, we're taking your head off, and we don't give a rip. And we're dang proud of it. We're better than you are. And they will absolutely demean the ones that they correct. And they are guilty. In verse 11b, you see that he says, they are guilty men. Think about that. Most of the problems that men face come from your guilt complex. <laughs> most, most of your problems do. All your neurosis, all your relationships that are screwed up, all of your greed, all of your workaholism, your alcoholism, your sex addictions, everything is fueled by this guilt complex that one day maybe we get Brent Stenberg to get up here and tell us how to solve it. It has a lot to do with the gospel. I'll just give you a little warning there. And these are guilty men with unchecked guilt. There you go. And they're godless. Look at the last verse in 11. Whose own strength is their God. Okay, God's answers are not easy to accept. But when we move into unchecked unrighteousness, 
He will check us. And it may not be the way you want. The way I'd like to be checked is to have one of my dear brothers walk into my life gently telling me, look, we're all in this together. I have problems too, but I've noticed this about your life lately. Why don't you think about this and the other because God's Word says this. That's what I'd like. That's painful. But that's God's way for the church to get corrected. It's through gentle, loving interaction with one another. No man's an island. That's what I would like. But I just want you to know that Habakkuk is asking, where is this God of justice? I'm telling you, He is there. And we'll see how this is just next week. Why He can do that. Use something that's evil to conquer the church and to correct her and to prune her and to get her back into shape. So we've got a couple of choices here. We can either take God's Word and His way of being corrected and promoting righteousness in society, taking our nation seriously, taking our city seriously, and taking our churches seriously. Or we can let His justice handle it in some other way because we need, we need a stronger uh, a lesson, which may come from the Babylonians. And if you look at the history of nations, you'll find this is the way it usually goes. Now, let's take just a few minutes to ask a, a, a tough question. How do we explain the presence and power of evil? Let's start with the idea that evil is a problem not for anyone except for the theist. The atheist doesn't have a problem explaining evil because he doesn't have a God. Also, he has no basis for a complaint. Because how do you know what's good and evil? How do you know what's right and wrong? You have no God, you have no standard for right and wrong. So who's to say whether something is good or evil? It's anybody's guess. So the atheist has no problem. He has no God and no standard. So why should he complain? Or you can take the Buddhist, the Eastern, who says that God is everything. It's all God. And ultimate reality is all spirit. Material is only an illusion. So they don't have a problem. Evil is an illusion because it's in the material world. Suffering, that is, is an illusion. So they have no problem either. So they leave the problem with us. Or you have the Muslim who says that Allah is the creator of good and evil alike. He is the creator, creator equally of both. And it just depends on what Allah wants for His own pleasure, whether good or evil. They have no problem. When the tsunami hits, Allah's mad. That's all there is to it. No problem. The problem is for the Christian theist who says God is good and He controls everything. we got a problem, don't we? Because we look at the suffering and the things that we call evil in this world and it seems to be contrary to the character of God. So we start with natural evil. Now, where does natural evil come from? Natural evil comes from moral evil. That's what the Bible teaches you. We're just going to go to the Bible and see what it says here in a quick chain of connections here. Natural evil in this world is caused by moral evil. That is, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 3. And there was a curse that came upon the ground because of rebellion against God. Okay? So now we're moving from natural evil to moral evil. Where does moral evil come from? Well, some say that moral evil is simply an illusion. Some say that moral evil is the privation of the good. That it's just the absence of good. Kind of like a vacuum. That's not what the, the Bible says. The Bible says that evil comes from a personal, evil, ferocious, attacking being named the devil. So we have a personal source of that evil in the devil. 
That's peculiar to the biblical outlook. Where does the devil come from? Well, he is permitted by God's decree. Everything in creation goes back to God. The devil fell from heaven. We're not told why. Evil is completely irrational. You find no explanation for its ultimate source, except that we know that God did not create evil. The Bible teaches us that. But we know that God orders all evil. And we know that nothing would be here without his permissively decreeing it. But he did decree it. Permissively. He actively decrees your salvation. He permissively allows in his decree for the presence of evil. That's a mystery. I don't understand it. The atheist doesn't understand it. The Marxist doesn't understand it. The Muslim doesn't. Nobody understands it. You're not in a minority. You're in the absolute unanimous majority. Nobody understands the source of evil. Philosophers can debate it. Nobody gets it. The Bible doesn't explain it. You turn the pages of your Bible, Genesis 3, the devil shows up. Where did he come from? The Bible doesn't tell you. So, but we know that God decrees all things and he allowed the presence of evil. And you say, well, why did he do that? Now, that's, this is where the most interesting point comes. Why did he do that? Why did he allow evil? I probably have 50 books in my library upstairs on this topic. Probably 50. Uh, most of them, uh, well, more than half of them written in the 20th century. Okay, So let's say 20 of them are written in the 20th century on this topic. Maybe 25 of them. Almost every one of them written in the 20th century give you this answer. And I can think of maybe one exception in the 20th century. In the 20th century, the answer is this. The reason God allowed evil is because he wants you to love him. And if you had no choice, then you'd be like a, a robot and you'd just simply be made to love him. But now with the presence of evil, you have a choice between good and evil. And your love now is genuine. You have a choice and you, you have a free will now. That's the 20th century answer. And I think I found one exception to that. If you go back to the Middle Ages, you rarely find this question asked at all. So why, why, wouldn't, they, why wouldn't the theologians be asking this question? Because it had a re- relatively uh, obvious answer. Not the answer of the 20th century. In the 18th and 19th century, you had this little transitional period where the question began to be asked, but the answer that was given would have been more like the answer given in the Middle Ages and at the Reformation. Here's the answer you get in the 18th, 19th century. That God decrees all things, including the permission of evil, because He has a passionate desire for His own glory. In fact, there's one uh, 19th century theologian, uh, W.G.T. Shedd, who puts it this way. He says, I'll paraphrase, he says, some of the attributes of God are only clearly displayed in the presence of evil. For example, His justice or His grace. So, in the Middle Ages and up to about the late 19th century, what you had was a God-centered, a theocentric perspective, a worldview that had God at the center It was God's character that had to be justified, not your comfort. As a result of the enlightenment, the answer has to be given in terms of you. We have to justify you and your dignity. So we say, 
evil had to be there so that you had a choice, so that you had free will, so that you could be a loving person. The problem with that is that when you get to heaven, will you be free? Will you be a loving person? Absolutely. Will evil be there? Absolutely not. So the formula doesn't work. Because man, at his best state, is only then free totally and only then has no evil in his presence. It also doesn't work because you think about God. The only non-contingent being in the universe is the living God. Is there any evil in him? Not one shred of evil. And he's free. So I commend to you to think about all the things going on in your life, including the things that seem to you to be evil and unjust. Let me tell you why they're there, ultimately. For the display of the glory of God. You are his theater in which he is displaying who he really is. And he is a God of justice, Habakkuk. And he is a God of grace and mercy. And he does rescue his sons from their disasters. And he does have you in his hands. And you're going to see it like you've never seen it before. And you may be amazed at the evil that corrects you from time to time, like the Babylonians correcting the church. But one day you're going to be infinitely more amazed at the exceeding greatness of His power in pouring out all of His love and grace upon you and exercising perfect justice at the last day. That's what this world is really all about. And the glory of it all is that God's glory guarantees our ultimate triumph over evil. Because why? Because when Jesus Christ comes back in all of His glory, He will usher us into glory. And there's where you get your answer. No man can find all the answers for life's troubles in this life. If you leave off heaven, you have no answers. Your explanation of your own difficulties in this life only find their rationale in the end time. And if you're saying this doesn't make any sense to me, would you just think about Jesus Christ? When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the devil probably laughed and thought he had won a great victory. But Paul puts it the other way. He says when he died on the cross, he disarmed the principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them by the cross. And God appointed the cross. Think of this. God appointed the worst evil that ever happened. He's not the source of evil. But once evil mysteriously comes into this arena, he orders it all, including the sacrifice of his own son, the greatest injustice that ever happened. But what happened through that sacrifice? The absolute destruction of all evil. And so it is with you, with the things that are happening in your life. And we've got two minutes. Let's finish up. So what? First of all, back off. You're not the boss. And most of our questions... Start with where Habakkuk started. Why do you make me look at this injustice? That's where we start. Me. Why are you making me go through this? And I think what Habakkuk's learning, back off. You're not the boss. You're not the big cheese. This is not a sandy-centered world. Hello. 
It is a Christ, a God-centered world. Secondly, chill. God's working out His righteous purpose in our times. He's got it in His hands. You think He's let go of the reins? Don't worry, gentlemen. He's got the reins. Just chill. Be amazed. God is using evil which He did not cause to affect His purposes which cannot fail. Do you think the devil can pull the wool over God's eyes? Do you think the devil can grab those reins from the Lord Himself? Do you think God is worried about His sovereignty? Do you think that He feels that He's being rivaled for the King of the universe by the devil Himself? You don't have a worry. Just be amazed. Even in the hurricanes and tornadoes and cancer and diseases and disappointments of life. He's got it all in His hands. And then relax. God will fulfill all His promises to you. If you don't understand something, go to what you do understand. It's like, you know, if we go to a funeral, oftentimes the preacher will say, I don't understand these things. Why did she die at 35 years of age? I don't understand this. Well, let's look at what we do know. We know that God sent His Son to die for people like her. We know that He prepared a place in heaven for people like her. Now, this we know. We know that in all things, God works together for the good. I don't understand it, but that I know. He works... All things together for the good for those who love God and call according to His purpose. And she loved God and called according to His purpose. That I know. So you just drive those stakes down and what you know. And you know that every promise in the Bible for God's people without any exception is fulfilled for you in Jesus Christ. Not one exception. You can't figure it out. I can't either sometimes. But I know what I know. And get it going. You have every reason to be self-confident. Not because of yourself, but because Christ lives in you. And if you don't have Christ in you, get Him in you. Receive Him today as Lord and Savior of your life. And then you have every reason to be self-confident because you have Christ's confidence. You have Him in you. You have every reason to be grateful. Every reason to be optimistic. Every reason to be cheerful, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Why? Because every promise in the Bible is yours. And God is in control of history, and that's what He's going to do with you, is fulfill every promise in you. And you have every reason to be obedient. Every single reason you need, no matter what the circumstances. Why? Because God is in control of history. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this wonderful book of the Bible written 2,600 years ago. We need it today. Help us. When we question you, help us to listen to you and to your real answers in the Scriptures. Help us to trust you and help us to know that everything that you're doing is for the purpose of bringing your people home safely to heaven. Grant us that confidence today as we leave here. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.